Football season has arrived. Today, we conduct our college football preview with college football scout extraordinaire, Chris Landry. The Cigar Dave Show is presented by Davidoff of Geneva and their Avo portfolio of cigars, including the Avo Heritage, crafted through centuries of traditions. Avo Heritage was developed for the cigar connoisseur, seeking a fuller-bodied cigar with strength, complexity, and impeccable smoothness. Savor every note of the spice-laden Avo Heritage, available at DavidoffGeneva.com and by Gurkha the world's finest cigars, including the new Gurkha Revenant, the five-country fusion of exceptionally aged tobaccos, will immediately jumpstart your senses for a cigar journey that only Gurkha can deliver. Offered now in both Corojo, Maduro, and new Connecticut presentations. Fire up a new Gurkha Revenant today. Visit GurkhaCigars.com. This is the Cigar Dave Show. With the general. What is that I smell? Oh, that is college football in the air. Hard to believe. College football week zero is kicking off today. There's about a dozen games. A couple of good ones, actually. So we will get into that with Chris Landry later on in, uh, actually just uh, after we conduct the national International Cigar Litation and Libation Ceremony. But as always, it is your global five-star general, Alpha Male in Chief, Cigar Dave the General, reporting for duty front and center from Command Center Alpha in the Cigar City of Tampa. As always, extending you a long-ash snappy salute, long-ash greetings and salutations, Semper Delicatio, always pleasure. I want to get right to it. Now, you have heard that there are government intrusions in every part of our life, lives. You want to smoke a cigar now? You got to be 21. You want to buy a uh, weapon in certain situations? You got to be 21. Like everywhere, you know, it, it used to be that you could just enjoy yourself, you could live. Everything now has to be regulated. I'm waiting for the time where they say if you want to buy a steak, you need to be 21. Oh, you want to buy that soda? You need to be 21. Wait a minute. You want to buy ice cream? I'm sorry, you need to be 21. Well, we're not that far away, and here's a perfect example. It is now illegal for people under the age of 21 to buy a can of whipped cream in New York State. The crumbling empire state of New York, it is now illegal. Now, let's face it. There are many couples under 21 that use whipped cream for various let's just say pleasure maneuvers. However, a Democrat senator and a Democrat representative got this bill uh, a pass. Now, it went into effect last November, but everybody's just finding out about it pretty much now when a supermarket in New York for the first time saying that we will now ID customers who are purchasing whipped cream. 200, by the way, if a store sells whipped cream, I'm not making this up. This is so absurd. If they sell whipped cream and they don't card someone to somebody underage, it's a $250 fine for the first offense and then $500 for each additional offense. And the supporters of this nonsensical legislation say that the nitrous oxide in whipped cream chargers could get teens high. This is the first time hearing it. So I talked to friends who have teens, and I said, 
Have you ever heard of teens using whipped cream to get high? Their kids all looked at me. First of all, the parents said no. They said, well, let me ask my kids. They all said, never heard of it. I have literally talked to probably 20 kids that are between high school age and college age. Not one mention they ever heard of such thing that people are using whipped cream cans filled with uh, the nitrous oxide to get their whipped cream out to get the high of laughing gases if you go to a dentist. And this just shows you the absolute absurdity we live in now. And only in New York State, they are never pleased. They have to over-regulate, re-regulate, triple-regulate. It is never enough to let their citizens live and let live. And they wonder why half a million New Yorkers left in the past year and a half, why they migrated to North Carolina and to Tennessee and to Florida and to Texas and to Nevada. They wonder. They can't figure it out. Absurd. You now must show an ID to buy whipped cream for something that is probably you consumed not in the manner in which it was intended so minimally that these two clown Democrat legislators figured we need to do something about it, even though it's not a big concern. Whenever you hear a politician, especially a Democrat, and there are some Republicans that do so as well, that cross the line and interfere with our rights to enjoy our lives. But most of the time, it's these Democrats. We saw it during the Wuhan virus, locking people down, taking away their freedoms, masking up. And now all of a sudden, we see people saying uh, in the CDC, well, maybe the things we said weren't right. And by the way, how about phony Fauci, the Fuhrer? Retiring. And the reason he's retiring is he knows that Congress will flip. The House of Representatives will flip after the November elections. They will become majority Republican. And he thinks if he retires before the Republicans take over, he won't have to testify in front of congressional committees because he's no longer a government employee. Think again. You will have your own parking spot, phony Fauci. You will have your own, own parking spot. You will have a VIP pass front row for all those hearings because you are going to have to testify about the gain-of-function dangerous research that you funded and lied about. You caused the Wuhan virus. You contributed by funding the gain-of-function research, and it's going to be time the piper gets paid. And I heard someone say, well, he will have to get subpoenaed. Great. Subpoena him. And I expect the Department of Justice to do the same thing they did to Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro if they don't testify. Haul his ass into a jail cell and into court. Let's see if the DOJ does that. We know the answer to that because they are the Department of Injustice, the DOIJ. So between what we're seeing now with excess regulation, now you want whipped cream in New York State, I, I, I can see it now. People are going to cross the state line, kids, to go to Pennsylvania to get whipped cream shipped in. It is just so, it's comical. And when I've told people about this, I said, what did I tell you? It never ends with these people. It's not just cigars. They're going to come after your, 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 your sweets. They're going to come after your soda. And people are like, oh, it's not going to happen. You'll see. It's crazy. It's happening. Mark my words. They're they want to outlaw meat. The environmentalists, vegan whack jobs, 
They are all under the guise of climate change. They want to come in and take your steak. And soon they'll say, if you want to buy that steak, you need to be 21. That hot dog, I'm sorry. We can't sell it to you until you're of legal age because you're not smart enough to make your own decision. Absolutely absurd. The two sponsors of this le original legislation, New York State Senator Joseph Adabo Jr. and the Assemblywoman and the State Assembly, Pfeffer, Stacey Pfeffer Amato. Both of them are complete, total horses' asses. That's exactly what they are. Absurd. All right. I want to spend most of our time talking college football, a subject that I love talking about, a subject activity that you love to watch. This week we'll talk college football. Next week it'll be the National Football League. So when we return, we'll conduct the International Cigar Lightation and Libation Ceremony, and then we'll get to our special guest, Chris Landry, football supreme scout, LandryFootball.com, around the corner. I had the pleasure of knowing the late, great Avo Uvesian, the man behind the Avo lineup of cigars. And Avo had a great saying. He would tell me, savor every note. Well, one cigar that I can tell you, you will savor every puff, savor every note, is the Avo Heritage. It was developed for the cigar connoisseur seeking a fuller-bodied cigar. Strength, complexity, impeccable smoothness, nice notes of spice. If you are looking for a cigar that delivers full-bodied richness, impeccable smoothness, savor every note of the spice-laden Avo heritage. Available at DavidoffGeneva.com. With an unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy, it's time for National Cigar Lightation Maneuvers. I am bringing out a classic. A cigar that has been in my humidor for at least probably 25 years. I've got several boxes of them that are just beautifully aged. An absolute oldie but goodie. I'm talking about the classic Partagas. Cuban name goes way back. Ramon Cifuentes was involved with the brand General Cigar, then purchased the brand from Ramon Cifuentes. I remember the late Edgar Cullman Sr. loved Partagas, loved Macanudo, but really told me he learned a ton from Ramon Cifuentes and that Partagas was just one of their classics, never to be screwed with. Cameroon wrapper, they were one of the first to use the Cameroon wrapper. Mexican San Andrean binder, again, one of the first to really use that wonderful Mexican San Andrean tobacco. Filler, Dominican Piloto Cubano and Mexican. And at the time, people said, geez, Partagas is just a beautiful taste. The Cameroon wrapper gives it a nice little spice. It's medium bodied, just a very pleasant cigar. And then when they found out there was Mexican San Andres in the binder and in the filler, people were shocked. But it is a well-balanced, beautiful cigar. Comes in, I think, geez, probably 10, 11 different sizes. I have pulled out the big gun, the number 10, Presidente. Seven and a half inches in length with a 49 ring gauge or 49 64 seven inch in diameter. You're looking at about $11 suggested retail price for the Partagas number 10 Presidente. It is since uh, I've got the classic packaging. It has since been repackaged, a little bit brighter, a little bit hipper, bigger band. I'm more partial to the classic packaging 
but I guarantee you there's just as many people that love the new packaging. Same great cigar, the Partagas Number 10 Presidente, an absolute classic. I will enjoy that today. Cigar-altering and highly sharpened leaf-exposing device. Self-sharpening. Double-edge. Stainless steel guillotine ready for action. Maximum BTU flame-throwing and heat-producing apparatus. On the Cigar Dave R&D Laboratories, I've got my five-star, five-jet butane flames arranged in a pentagon layout. I will use that today on this Partagas. Cigar, Cigar pre-lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one. Perfect cut. Let me toast the foot of this cigar. Fantastic. I'm taking my time. Now, with a 49 ring gauge, it's not going to take me a long time to toast the foot of this cigar. All right, I will puff and rotate. There we go. Mm hmm. Mm. Oh, love this Cameroon wrapper. Getting the nice, spicy, oily tooth. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Perfect light. Mm. And now I need the appropriate accompaniment. Scotch, bourbon, and beer. Commence thirst-quenching libationary maneuvers. Well, this Partagas Classic, as I mentioned, Cameroon wrapper, but it has San Andreas Mexican binder, and it has some San Andrean Mexican filler. So what would go better with a Partagas than some Mexican tequila? And I have picked up the or picked out the Suerte Extra Añejo, aged seven years, 56 hours slow roasted agave, charred in American oak whiskey barrels. And this is a sipping tequila. Do not put this in a margarita or any other mixed libation. You put this in a snifter, this goes perfectly. This is like cognac. It is magnificent. The aroma on this, honey, some sweetness, Vanilla, let me say cheers. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Double distilled, aged seven plus years, American white oak barrels. It's got a nice light brown caramel color to it. Definitely notes of vanilla, some cinnamon, a little sweetness on the tongue. Mmm. Definitely on the full-bodied side, uh, medium to full-bodied. Vanilla, a little maple, a little bit of that white oak, a little bit of that bourbony taste. The Suerte, extra Añejo tequila, aged seven years. It is a beauty. Goes perfectly with my Partagas. Mm. Outstanding combination. When we return, I'm chomping at the bit to talk football. Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. He's been a scout. He's been in the coaching ranks, worked with Bill Belichick. He is a just football guru extraordinaire. We'll talk college football around the corner. In fact, as you listen to this, because we dropped this show right around late morning Saturday. Today is uh, uh, Saturday, August 27th. First day of football today, noon, game underway. Cannot wait. I'm going to be watching football after this show all day long into the night. College football is back, and we'll talk about it with Chris Landry right around the corner. Question I receive most from connoisseurs. General, what 
is the newest cigar that I should try? Easy answer. Right now, it's the Gurkha Revenant. Very unique addition to the Gurkha portfolio. It comes in two different wrappers, a Corojo or a San Andrean Maduro wrapper. But what is unique about the Gurkha Revenant? It uses essentially the same Cameroon binder and some broadleaf in the filler. So you're going to get some unique sweetness. You're going to get some unique spice. The San Andres Maduro wrapper adds more sweetness with a little bit more of a unique complexion, whereas the Corojo, more of a medium-bodied balance smoke. Try one of each. You can't go wrong. The brand-new Gurkha Revenant, available in Corojo and San Andres Maduro wrapper. Visit GurkhaCigars.com. That music can mean only one thing. College football is back. And it starts, hard to believe, today, Saturday, August 27th. In fact, as we drop this podcast, this show, the first game of the season is underway. Austin P. at Western Kentucky University. What a barn burner. And, barn burner. and then at 12.30 Eastern time, Nebraska versus Northwestern in Dublin, Ireland on Fox. Didn't see that one coming. And so since it is college football, the NFL season is around the corner. We always spend time, a tradition here on the Cigar Dave Show, to preview the upcoming college football and NFL season. And this week, we'll spend time on college football. And we have a very special guest who's joined us before, Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. Chris, I'm bestowing a new title onto you, the Supreme Scout of all football. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Undeserving, but I really appreciate it. It's always no, great no, to no. be with you, Dave. Well-deserving. You join us from uh, your football scouting cave in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And let me just uh, uh, tell our, uh, our, our alphas and our lieutenants that are listening about you, because you have served as a coach, scout, administrator at both the college football and NFL levels. Uh, now, obviously, with Landry Football, you've got your own coaching and scouting consulting business serving both college football programs and NFL programs as well. You were a pro and college scout for the Houston Oilers and Tennessee Titans, also served as a coordinator of their scouting department. You served as coordinator of the NFL Scouting Combine in 1993, and you began your career with the Cleveland Browns I believe, with a one Bill Belichick, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. I can still remember it, pinch myself. It's been a long time, but to my right was at the head of the table was the head coach, Bill Belichick, and the guy sitting directly across from me was none other than Nick Saban. So to say at that time that uh, I would be, here I am with maybe the guy that's the greatest pro football coach and the greatest college football coach of all time, in that room, basically with an arm's length of me either way is, um, yeah, well, how lucky can I be? Uh, and, uh, you know, who doesn't fit into that picture? It would definitely be me. But, uh, yeah, I think about those days often. So, quick question here. Bill Belichick obviously had a certain way that he liked to scout players. Every coach obviously today has different things, and certainly the tools of the trade have probably changed dramatically since the mid-80s, or, or actually early 92 when you were with the Cleveland Browns and with Bill Belichick, video, certainly now the ability to see 
just multiple angles, things you didn't see before, because a lot of it was probably still on film, maybe in the early stages of video. But what was what were the top things you learned from Bill Belichick that he looked for in a player? Well, it's the details. It's what a guy can do, not what he can't do. The in, you know, for example, whether it's a guy like Teddy Bruschi, who's a 253-pound nose tackle from Arizona, you can't play him at nose tackle. You know that. Well, where do you find it? That's what most people thought and said. But Bill said, can he do something else? And so did you work him out at linebacker? Did you test him there? Did you? And, you know, but in, and of course, I went back and did, and he was a guy that ended up being a really good player. Just just one example. The big thing with, with Bill, and I think Nick Saban has taken that on the college level, is to have what we call critical factors. And it means just that for each position. And so you have to have an ability to evaluate players, how he fits for your team, not how he fits in the league, not how the stats or not of the big plays, but how a guy fits or doesn't fit for you. Bill wants, you know, certain length in corners. Don't bring him a small corner. Um, it doesn't mean the guy won't play in the league. It just doesn't do what he wants. And same thing with every position. And that changes. That modifies a lot. And I think you see that as the game changes. For example, the safeties were more of the almost linebacker-sized guys now that played safety. Now those guys have to be more like uh, corners. So um, you have to modify, change it, and make sure that everybody's on the same page. And my goodness, the details were, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, he, he focused on little details that you would not imagine. The little things add up to the big thing. So when people say don't sweat the details, uh, he made you sweat the details. And, and that's what kind of separate him in the general sense uh, of how to do things from a scouting and coaching level, which I work with them in, in both areas. Well, you've got a unique perspective because you have done it both on the college and the pro level, run a scouting department, and you see all these draft, uh, draft gurus on all the sports networks and NFL network, and you hear what they all have to say. And, of course, many times you look and say, what are they thinking? What what They don't have the information, the details that maybe an insider like you may have because, again, you have been – in that room, knowing what coaches want, what's your take on a lot of these draft gurus? Are they a lot of them? You know, basically just pie in the sky, and then people forget about what their predictions were two, three years later. Well, I think they're they're like reporters. If you've got a beat, if you're covering the Bills or you know Alabama or Tennessee, Texas, whatever. Um, your job is to kind of report and get information and report what you know. These guys tend to talk to people in the league and they get a, you know, tidbits here or there. And they put that out as kind of, you know, what they think, but they really, it's more of information gathering. They're not evaluators. And there's no such thing as evaluating for the league. You have to evaluate for teams, again, according to what you're looking for. And so, yeah, there's no question that, um, and it's what we try to do at LandryFootball.com is to try to bring a little bit of that out there. It's, there's no such thing as this is guys the best, you know, these are the top five linebackers in the draft. Well, there's no such thing. It's you grade them, and how you grade them is going to depend upon how they fit for you. And then there's a cutoff point from a grade standpoint where there is a maybe a drop-off. And that really is, is lost. So when you see top five this and top ten this and big board this, 
They're just throwing things up, kind of projecting where they may get drafted, which is maybe entertaining, and I think it's kind of almost fantasy football-ish. But the reality is it's not about evaluating, and you hit on it. Nobody really goes back and says, well, you were wrong on all of this, because in, in reality they're not right or wrong. They're just gathering other people's information and putting it out there as something to entertain folks. Well, I always get a kick out of watching the draft coverage, and you'll hear one of the analysts say, now he is your prototypical cornerback. The only He's got great speed. He's got great reach. However, his hands are only 13 and a half inches, and if they were 13 and three-quarter inches, he would be just the optimal player. So you hear the, the nitpicking on everything, and there, I don't think there is – a perfect optimal player. We're humans. You're going to have something. He may be a little bit, uh, what, a tenth off on his on his 40-yard 40, uh, 40 run, but there's no such thing really as perfection, but they almost try to appear that, try to portray that there is perfection out there. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, let's give a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, and they just throw stuff out there. The reality is there are no perfect players. You're, you're correct. And there are guys that maybe will look the part and maybe have the physical attributes, but maybe they're lacking something else. Maybe they're lacking a certain physical attribute that might, uh, you know, hurt their chances of being successful in the league if they can't overcome that. So if you're Drew Brees and you're height deficient, you're short, you have to have the ability to overcome it. Okay, so Drew Brees didn't make it in the league because he was short. He made it because even though he was short, he could play well on his toes. He was a great tennis player who beat Andy Roddick as a youngster in Texas, you know, that could move his feet so he could get deeper in his drops. He can do things. Uh, Josh Allen, a player that you're very familiar with, uh, yep. of, of a team that you follow, is physically everything you look for, athletically, and all, but it takes time to develop and uh, adjust and learn. And some guys learn at a different rate. It's no different than any student in a class. Some guys learn differently, and, and they're taught different things in different schemes and systems. So I think the teams that win, the teams that draft the best, or not just the ones that draft the best, but they know how to develop because drafting and develop are the same thing. It's really is Parcells had that analogy and other people have used it. But if you think about shopping for groceries and cooking the meal, that truly is what drafting and coaching players are all about. You can have the great greatest groceries, but if you don't cook the meal and you don't know how to cook the meal, then the meal won't taste well. If you've got Less, you know, ingredients, you can maybe cook a decent meal, but it may not be great. It's when you can get the good ingredients, you know how to cook it, you spend the right time, amount of time developing it. That's what coaching, you know, evaluating and coaching works. And, and, and you see the organizations that are bad, they're constantly changing. So you have different philosophies every three or four years, different coaches. And so what you did three years ago might have worked if you had stayed with it, but now you have to throw it out because you get somebody that's completely different that is going to want different things. And so you never build anything. It's like cutting your house down to the studs every, you know, three months and starting over, you never get to move into it. Right. You, you hit that right on the head because Josh Allen, who you just spoke about, same head coach for the last five seasons, had the same offensive coordinator for four seasons, uh, same 
quarterback coach who's now his offensive coordinator for the last, I think, three seasons. So there is something for stability. There's no question about it. Now, before we go into talking about the crazy con uh, college football conference changes, I have to just say, my family and I are just so excited <laughs> you're joining us today here on the Cigar Dave Show. And I'm channeling my inner Brian Kelly. Now, being in Baton Rouge, when you heard that, was there a major cringe factor being that you are a native of Louisiana? No, I've known Brian for guys forever since he was at Grand Valley State. Uh, I got to know him in, in small college in, in Michigan. And, um, you know, he's an interesting guy because he's from Massachusetts, and he's, but he spent most of his adult life, his career life in, in the Midwest. So he's got a little bit of that. I think it's a case of, you know, trying to fit in. I think he's heard a lot about – um, you know, Midwest guy, Northeast guy in the South, it's different. And, you know, I think sometimes you can try too hard. I think he did. I think he kind of, you know, tried to in the front of fans, you maybe tend to do things that are a little, you know, probably you better thought, look, be yourself. You know, I tell folks exactly. all the time. I, I got that a while back when, when I, uh, I mentioned that I kind of came up with Nick Saban and I recommended him for the LSU job back when they hired Jerry DiNardo and then eventually um, had to convince him to take the LSU job the next go around. And one of the things I heard was, oh, you're hiring a guy from, you know, from West Virginia and he coached at Michigan State. And I'm like, it, that has nothing to do with it. You'll learn to understand his ways and you and he yours. It's about great programs and need great coaches. And so I think Brian just needs to relax and do his job. And I think he is settling in. I think that's just a case of trying too hard personally. Yeah, you, you don't see a Southern uh, coach go up to, uh, let's say, the Bears and say, well, it's really glad to be here with Chicago but I'm telling you, being with the beers, I'm just so excited. You know, it's almost like going in from one accent to the other, That's and people right. would look and go, what? To me, it's – and I think maybe at one time college football was very provincial. If you were in the south, you stayed in the south, the northeast, right. northeast, and the west. I think that's today people care – fans care about one thing, winning championships. That is right. it. If you win, they don't care where you're from. And I think uh, – I think we've come a long way since, you know, like uh, the Alabama coach has to be from the South, like a Bear Bryant or or somebody from Georgia uh, mm -hmm. has to coach Georgia. I think that's just, you know, changed dramatically. Well, let's talk about talking about dramatic changes. The college football conferences, I don't recognize them anymore, Chris. I grew up in Buffalo. I went to Syracuse, as you know. And to me, there was like an, a, an established order. You had, for example – Various teams and various conferences that you had familiarity with, they played with each other. For example, you knew Michigan was going to play Michigan State. Ohio State was going to play Michigan. Michigan was going to play Notre Dame. You knew in the South it was going to be Alabama and Georgia. Uh, Syracuse would play Penn State or Syracuse would play West Virginia. And now you're seeing everything blown up. And I don't think it's that great. To me, UCLA and USC and the Big Ten, they don't belong. That's, it just, it's like, uh, uh, to me, putting, putting brisket on a peanut butter sandwich. It just doesn't work. Well, it's certainly not aesthetically pleasing. Um, I don't like it. I preferred when conferences were smaller and you'd play maybe more uh, out, you know, out-of-conference games. But that's going by the wayside for the almighty dollar, as everything does. 
it's all about that. It is nothing but that. It's, you know, it's anybody that says if it's just, just lying or just being very, very disingenuous or trying to pull the wool over your eye, it's just, it's all about money. And it's due to the fact, and, you know, for example, in the NFL, back in the day when they weren't making big money, they decided that, that it's better to have everybody benefit because while we are competitors on the field, we're business partners. So you can't be New York or Chicago and think that we're going to do our own TV deal and expect the Green Bays of the world to survive. And so it was, we're going to all for one. College football has not been that way. It's never been that way. And we live in a, and I think if the NFL, if you had some of the owners in the day, they, they would like to do their own thing. They don't care as much about the league. And I think that what we see now is, because there's no leadership in college football, there's no way to organize everything and structure everything. What we're dealing with is everybody is for themselves. Um, the SEC's certainly trying to, you know, in- increase their footprint and make more money. And the Big Ten was right there with the SEC in terms of power structure. They they did the same thing and. They obviously struck a huge TV deal, and they were in the process of negotiating with USC and UCLA as this was taking place so they can get more money out of it. That's where we are. That's where we're headed. It's not going to stop. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know where it's actually going to ultimately settle in. I think what has to happen is there has to be some structure in some organization. I think college football, more than any other sport, is very chalky. There's only there's only two three teams this year or most years that even have a chance to win the national championship. Right. So anybody other than that is going to be playing for a good season and and we're going to enjoy all the games. But unless we open things up, and I think as we open up the playoffs, um, we're going to have to have some structure. And it's you know people blame the NCAA. The NCAA has no legislative power. Every time they've tried to legislate anything, they get litigated in court. So there's, there's, you can't say, well, you can't transfer 10 times as a player. Oh, oh no, I'll sue you, and we'll see. Well, okay, then, you know, you lose this one. That's why they're cutting back in the NCAA. They are now into the billions with a B in terms of legal costs in losing court battles. So who's running it? Well, it's, it's the, you know, the Kevin Warrens and the Greg Sankeys of the world. Well, we're going to run it, and we're, we're the SEC, we're the B. And it's, you know, we're going to have two big leagues to where it's the Big Ten and the SEC and everybody that's not in those leagues are just, you know, afterthoughts. Uh, I don't know. Um, But I think there needs to be structure and organization to handle not only this, but to create, you know, maybe it's more playoff spots. To legislate if we're going to have NIL, okay, let's organize it, though. Let's have a structure. It's college football free agency, but they can leave any time. None of it really makes a lot of sense uh, uh, because it's disorganized. And everybody from, you know, top to bottom wants more organization, but there's nobody that has the authority to do it. And so that needs to – we need some help in that regard. And I hate to think about looking to Congress to help with anything, but we need some higher power to say – we've got to organize things better and create some structure. That's all everybody needs. It's a, it's, is better structure and organization. 
Well, when you look at some of the changes, we talked about USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten, and we still don't know about UCLA because the California Board of Regents are now involved, and they don't want that to take place. So there's going to be some some uh, haggling going on there. But we see that in the SEC, we've got two teams leaving the Big 12. I think next season, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to be Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC. And then you look at the Big 12, and if I'm not mistaken, Sergeant Steve, you would tell me, I think, what, Cincinnati's going to the Big 12, aren't they? Yes, along with Houston, BYU, and UCF. Right, and then you have West Virginia. And again, as a Syracuse fan, I remember there was a great rivalry between Syracuse and West Virginia. And when West Virginia went to the Big 12, I said, that doesn't make sense at all. West Virginia has nothing in common with Texas or, uh, or, or uh, Oklahoma or any of the Big 12 schools. But again, they were pushed in for, for money. So when you look at all the different changes that are going on right now, the days where you could say, hey, this is going to be a regional, uh, geographic type of conference. They're they're long gone, and I mean, you know, whether it's the American Conference or Conference USA, I think the only one that's still like probably geographically tight is probably the uh, the MAC conference. The Mid American is still pretty much in the Midwest. That's it. Yeah, it, it is, and you know, they're they, obviously they've taken like Buffalo in and out, but you know, we've seen that happen. But you're right, it's. It's it's all about not geographical sense. The SEC's just kind of expanded their footprint. They have connecting states. It's just kind of grown and grown. But but certainly the Big Ten getting USC, UCLA, just to give you an idea to further emphasize the money. Now USC is as big a brand as there is. They've had Heisman Trophy winners, national championships, everything. But just to give you an idea where the money has gone, and talking with the their staff there. Where it, it was, with the money that they were going to make from the Pac-12, they felt they could not compete for national championships. At USC, uh, that the only way for them to survive on a ultra-competitive level was to take the Big Ten money, which is going to be huge for them. They're going to they're gonna make, they tell me, three times, not double, three wow. times the money than they would have made from the Pac-12. That gives them the ability, like when you look at these large support staffs at Alabama and Georgia and LSU and Florida, that's been doing that for a long time in the SEC. Um, USC has been like a fraction of that. And so money is the key to all of this. Better facilities, larger staffs. Um, now with NIL and these collectives, it's, it's, it's money, money, money. And I know that the fans and the media maybe probably hate hearing it because, you know, it's one thing that you want to watch the game and it's the purity. There's no purity in college football. No. Once you start to make a lot of money, then everybody's going to want theirs and the players are going to want theirs. And I do think that probably what needs to happen, and we're probably going to need some governmental involvement to do this, we're going to need some form of a college football players association, much like the NFL players association, the NBA players association, MLB, NHL, et cetera. That's what's going to have to happen because right now it's just we're not going to have any rules. We're going to do what we want, and if you disagree, we're going to take you to court, and there are plenty of lawyers that are saying, yeah, we'd love to fight that because the NCAA is, is again, is powerless in that. They have no enforcement ability, so – if you want to go ahead and form a collective and you're not supposed to use NIL in recruiting, of course everybody is, who's going to stop you? 
I mean, because there's no subpoena power with the NCAA. So it, it, until you get greater organization, it's going to be difficult. But that's what, that's what everybody's doing, going with the money. And now the latest is if you're Oregon, if you're Washington, uh, will you take a little less money to go to the Big Ten and maybe not, maybe get only a piece of it? Does the Big Ten want you? Does the Pac-12 survive? Uh, the Big 12, the Pac-12 approached the Big 12 about kind of joining powers. Uh, they said, no, we're good. We're on our own. The Big 12 feels confident. Now, the Big 12 is not going to be as good without Texas and Oklahoma as a brand but, you know, they're going to survive on their own end. I mean, they're not going to get the type of TV deals the Big Ten or SEC gets, but they're going to survive. But how will they survive? Will they be big players? Can they just – when we go to a 12-team playoff, I think things will change somewhat because at least making the playoffs is going to be a thing, kind of like the basketball tournament. Right. It's not going to change who's going to win the national championship. It's still going to be the big, big, bud, big boy, the Blue Bloods. But you can make the playoffs – you're playing for something that maybe some of those other schools are just they're playing for the Big 12 title, but probably not for anything more than that. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal not that long ago, a few months ago, talking about the previous commissioner of the Pac-12 and what a disaster he was. He loves spending money, building big offices, uh, setting up a TV network, but didn't have the long-term interests of the, uh, of the conference uh, in mind, and I think he walked away with a huge sum of uh, money, a huge golden parachute, but the damage was done. And you have to wonder, do we maybe have two types of championships? Is there going to be just the Big Ten and the SEC and then everybody else in another championship competing? Are there going to be two, two type of championships? I think it's going to depend on – I think it's going to all start from a competitive on-the-field standpoint of expansion of the playoffs and win. I think we're going to go back to the table on that, and we're going to see and, – and there's some discussion of 12, 16, automatic bids versus, you know, how many, you know, at-large or wild cards, however you want to call it. They call them at-larges. Um, I think that's going to determine that. And I do think that we could see a separation of – well, power five, group of five is what we call it, but, but it's no longer a power five. I mean, it's a power – fill in the blank it's really now it's it's really a power two and a next level three and then a group of five whatever you want to however you want to title it Larry Scott is was a disaster as the Pac-12 commissioner because I, I think that he could have headed off some of this uh, how, how bad do you have to be to form a Pac-12 network when half the people in the state of California can't even get it Right. I and mean, that's a pretty bad deal. And I'm one of the 150 people in the in the country that that get the Pac-12 network, but I got to go to a, a specific streaming network to get it cuz it, it's it's things like that 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 probably set back the league. It hurt it and they've fallen behind. And in a fast-growing, you know, world of college football, if you find fall behind, you're not going to be able to catch up. I mean, it's it's going to be devastating, and I think that's where the Pac-12 is. They are trying desperately to hold on to what they have in the Pac-12, and the reality is if Stanford, Cal, Oregon, Washington, for example, they get offered by a Big Ten, they're gone. I mean, they are, they're gone. I mean, they get offered on Monday at 8 a.m. by noon. They're, they're gone. Right. And and they have that's the other thing. At least in the ACC, there's a grant of rights agreement, which I'm sure lawyers are looking in for loopholes. But Pac-12, USC, and UCLA, they're going to leave without not a penalty, not a cent 
of a penalty to leave. That that that's that's basically keeping, you know, not minding the store when you were the commissioner to not have them locked up to not create a better value for your league to where they would. So if you're in the Pac-12, why would you agree to a new TV contract when you're going to basically be holding out for something better somewhere else? It's it's a mess. It's an absolute mess that George Kliakoff has inherited there. Well, you talk about the ACC, and I think the ACC made a very key strategic mistake two years ago when COVID hit and there was a scramble to play some semblance of a schedule, five, six, seven games, whatever whatever it was at the time. Notre Dame as an independent football uh, team had nowhere to go because the limitations on travel, everything had to be within the conference in terms of games. You couldn't go uh, uh, out of the conference. They had an opportunity when Notre Dame had nowhere to go and not play football to say, okay, you want to play this season? You need to come into the ACC as a full member. You've got every other sport with the ACC, basketball, men's basketball, women's basketball, all the other non-major sports. But if you want to participate this year, you got to pony up. And they made a mistake, and they didn't do that, and that left Notre Dame out there. And so Notre Dame now, let's face it, if they go to the Big Ten, it's over. Well, you know, the ACC didn't have as much leverage, though, because Notre Dame wasn't going to join the ACC. They never were. They, they weren't interested in football. And, and, for example, Notre Dame kind of cherry-picked. So they, they got basketball in the ACC. It's a basketball conference. But they've got hockey, and they're they're actually competing the Big Ten in hockey. So they're they're kind of yeah, that's because they no in the ACC. But yeah, no, you can't can't do that. So they they again, they're kind of like do what they want. Um, and look, I mean, the ACC benefited by having Notre Dame. Notre Dame would have ended up uh, either not playing or playing five games. They weren't going to leverage their future because their future never has been or, or never been any desire to be in the ACC football wise. Now I don't know that. They have a desire to be in the Big Ten. I mean, look, the Big Ten's new television contract has a clause in it. So all the money that they're making for seven years, if Notre Dame joins, uh, that contract gets renegotiated upward, like by a lot more. Uh, but Notre Dame has held on to it. I don't know how long they're going to hold on to it. They, they, in their independence in football, that is. Um, that's what they believe in. That's what they do. And as long as they can get – the money, and they have a, a, a monetary figure in mind. They like being that we're special, we're Notre Dame type, and they, they like that. Uh, it, they kind of get the best of both worlds. But I, I do think that if we go in, again, let's watch the playoff as we expand to whatever. If we're talking about competing and, you know, how many at-larges you get. Remember, Notre Dame gets in only as an at-large because they don't compete in the conference. So right. would that change in the future? Don't know. I really don't know. But – um, you know, the old issues with the Notre Dame and the Big Ten, um, I think those things are like back in the day, the, the history goes that Notre Dame wanted to join the Big Ten way back in like the 30s. And Fritz Chrysler at Michigan said, no, we don't. And, and so it, the old story as well, we're not going to ever go back. Well, that that really times have changed. And if if it's financially feasible for Notre Dame to be in the Big Ten, then they'll decide to do it. If they don't, if it's not, then they won't do it, and they'll hold on to their independence as long as they can. But I think the ACC thing was 
they they were kind of hoping that if they kind of get, extend the olive branch, that maybe it might lead to them coming. But the power play wasn't going to work on Notre Dame from the ACC. They just they just didn't have it. In fact, the ACC would be the the conference right now if the Clemson would leave tomorrow for the SEC if they could get out. And so they have right. to be a little concerned about holding holding on to what they have. Well, let's talk about the. 2022 college football season. It is technically starting today, what they call week zero. Uh, we said Austin P at uh, Western Carolina. They are opening up the season on CBS Sports Network, noon Eastern today. Now, an interesting game, Nebraska Northwestern in Dublin, Ireland on Fox today. There's a couple of other games. I mean, nothing overly dramatic. Uh, I'll probably watch uh, maybe the Duquesne at Florida State only because I'm in the state of Florida. I'll watch that. Uh, Wyoming at Illinois because as a Syracuse uh, Orangeman fan, our former quarterback Tommy DeVito was just named as the starting quarterback at Illinois. Good luck. I'm not sure how that's going to go. But it's just good to get back into a rhythm to actually see college football on TV again. Yeah, it's uh, maybe an appetizer. I don't know. Maybe even it's not an appetizer. Maybe it's a stale bag of chips. I don't know. But it's it's football, and I am intrigued by Nebraska Northwestern. I think Nebraska should win this game. I I think there's a chance that they could be improved. Northwestern, well coached, um, and Pat Fitzgerald. But that really am not. I don't like their personnel coming back. But I think that's interesting. And obviously, um, you know, Illinois against Wyoming, that's going to be intriguing as well. And then maybe Vanderbilt, Hawaii, late night for those late nighters. That's 10.30 p.m. Eastern time start, by the way. So um, it's going to be interesting to see. But I think the most intriguing one is Nebraska-Northwestern because – there's a lot of pressure uh, on Scott Frost, and winning the first game doesn't guarantee you anything. But a loss this early, like the loss to Illinois the, to start last year, uh, could spiral down uh, a season in which he cannot afford to have. He can't have a repeat of a three-win season like last year or even a four- or five-win. He's going to have to show some progress. And beating a Northwestern team that's more that he's more talented than I think is imperative to get the season off to the right start. It's really amazing a coach that had so much success at the University of Central Florida going to Nebraska. He's been an absolute dud. What do you attribute that to? Well, you know, great job at Central Florida. Winning in that league is different in all due respect to the season that he had and they had and they're claiming titles. That's a different brand of football. It's a different level. And maybe playing a team like an Auburn in a bowl game or what have you in a one-time situation is a lot different than playing in a bigger conference. So he goes to Nebraska. Nebraska is his alma mater. But Nebraska is not the same Nebraska that it was when he played there. They don't have the players at the line of scrimmage that can do what they did back then. So when you have the most talent in the league, as he did at UCF, you're a much better coach. You go into the Big Ten where you're not recruiting the same level of players. And you're you're basically coaching four or five teams on your schedule that are better than you. You're going to have a problem. You're not going to out-coach people in win nine games when you've got six win talent. And the fact that he's not been able to recruit better at Nebraska is the biggest concern and is still the biggest concern going forward. My my issue would be that Nebraska, while I don't expect them to get back to 
the heyday, they could at least, in my view, be as good as Wisconsin or Iowa. Two teams in the Big Ten West that have kind of similar backgrounds, but, but Nebraska with a greater football tradition. The fact that they've not recruited better and developed better has been a problem. I mean, last year, that was the, it was the worst coach special teams I've seen in maybe a decade at Nebraska. They were mistake-prone. They lost games from a coaching standpoint um, that probably could have gone either way. And they're not overly talented, but they're, they're, they're more talented with their rec- – they, they had more talent than three wins last year. So it's a combination of both, um, uh, talent and coaching. He made some changes on the staff. Mark Whipple comes in from Pittsburgh as the new offensive coordinator. So we'll see if he improves things. He's hired a special team coach for the first time. But Nebraska is a different place. Nebraska, when they were dominant – that was when Nebraska had facilities when no one had great facilities. Right. Nebraska was great when six teams a year were on TV and they were one of them playing Oklahoma every year. Now everybody's on TV. Now everybody has great facilities. So it's tougher to go in and convince a kid from Texas or Florida to leave that state to go to Nebraska when I can go to any number of schools in Florida or Texas that has facilities just as good. And I don't need to go to Lincoln, Nebraska. No disrespect, but spending a fall there, it's, it can be uh, challenging if you're not from there. So if you like I think that, that is contributing. If you like cornfields, you'll love, you'll love Nebraska. All right, let's look at uh, some of the games during week one. Starts Thursday, September 1st. There's a whole bunch of games uh, that Thursday evening. I think the one that I would be interested in, great rivalry, West Virginia at Pitt, 7 p.m. on ESPN. Uh, you got Central Michigan at Oklahoma State, who's ranked number 12, also at 7 o'clock. And then when we go to Friday, September 2nd, I'm uh, not seeing any great games that night. Eh, Western Michigan, Michigan State, Michigan State ranked number 15. But on Saturday, September 3rd, we actually have some pretty interesting games. Uh, I think um, Cincinnati, number 23, Cincinnati at number 19, Arkansas, 3.30 on ESPN. That could be an interesting game. Oregon, Georgia, Oregon number 11, Georgia number 3 in Atlanta. Uh, on ABC, I absolutely think that would be an interesting game to watch. Uh, and there's just a whole bunch of other games, obviously, starting. you got Notre Dame at Ohio State at 7.30. That is must-see uh, viewing. So there's some pretty good – oh, and then on Sunday, September 4th, you've got Florida State, LSU, in your neck of the woods at the uh, uh, Superdome, whatever whatever they call it now. What is it? It used to be Mercedes-Benz. What's it Caesars. now? Caesars. Caesars has uh, gotten the Caesars Sportsbook uh, uh, Superdome. There you go. And then you got Clemson, Georgia Tech on Monday. So we've got a ton of great games. Really no reason to leave the house on Labor Day weekend. No, and I think the game that is most intriguing and maybe the most competitive is Utah at Florida. Uh, I, I think Utah. That. That's the yeah, other think, one at seven o'clock on ESPN. Yeah, Correct. I think Utah is Kyle Winningham. Maybe has the does has the best developmental program in the country. That is taking two and three stars and coaching them up to where they're not only just pro prospects but really good team. Uh, Florida's in a transition, but good offensive line, depth at running back, outstanding athlete at quarterback. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, Notre Dame, Ohio State, I hope that game's competitive. I think Ohio State may be a lot better, and you mentioned Georgia, Oregon. Uh, no, there's, there's some really good matchup. It's obviously more games in week one, and uh, that's what makes college football unique is you can plug in a big-time game 
um, and everyone's going to focus on Notre Dame, Ohio State, or you know, Oregon, or Georgia. There's there's a lot of good games, and every game means so much in the regular season of college football that um, it's going to be a lot of fun. When we look at the two coach or the two polls, the AP Top 25 and the AFCA Coaches Poll, the first five slots are identical. Alabama number one, number two Ohio State, three Georgia, four Clemson, five Notre Dame. Any disagreements with that, Chris? I don't think there's a top five. I grade teams, not rank them, and I grade them before you rank them. So there's Alabama, and there's a slight gap, and then there's Ohio State, and then the slight gap, and then there's Georgia, and then there's a huge gap. So there are three teams that are playoff caliber teams. I don't know that because Georgia and Alabama will play each other once. I think both Alabama and Georgia will go unbeaten. And then I think Alabama will beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. I, you know, I don't know. A lot of things can happen. but And I think both could make the playoffs. Both are playoff caliber teams, as is Ohio State. You go Clemson, Notre Dame, Utah, Oklahoma, Baylor, Michigan, Oregon. You can take those teams – from four to 12 and flip them. You put them in a hat, there's no difference between them. I think Clemson is getting ranked there, and probably rightly so. If I were to pick a fourth team, they've got the best shot because they're a good team, potentially really good in a very weak league where I think they've got a very favorable schedule. But, you know, uh, people will say things like, well, Notre Dame doesn't deserve to be five. Well, neither does Utah, neither does Michigan, neither does Oklahoma, neither does Baylor. Who are you going to put? If you're going to have a ranking, somebody's got to go five. And none of them are really the fifth best team or the fourth. So I I think, again, from four to 12 are interchangeable, and I think 13 to about 28 are interchangeable. And basically what we've seen in the playoffs is they – Last year was Cincinnati. Last year was Michigan. Both of those teams had great years, but they weren't really competitive against the the, the two best teams in the country. Right. And I think that's likely going to be the case this year. Um, Alabama's the I think the clear favorite. I think Ohio State, depending on how how much their defense can improve, is in that category. I think Georgia can compete with those teams, whether they get in or not. Uh, but I think the other teams will probably fall short. I think Clemson has enough talent. If D.J. Uh, Unga Lale, uh, the quarterback, uh, improves, maybe they can be, by the season's end, a legitimate fourth team that could maybe challenge in the semifinals. But if you look at the college playoffs at two, uh, at, at, in the semifinals, uh, usually we have blowout games. And whether it's Michigan State or Washington or – you know, Cincinnati or Michigan, whatever the case, just usually Oklahoma, usually blowout games. And you got to play the games. None of the games have been played. These are all just correct prognostications. Uh, these are the, until you play the games. And let's face it, we see upsets throughout the course of the year. We see mm-hmm. uh, teams that we that come out of nowhere. So the usual cast of characters are on the top twenty-five. Whether it's Oregon. Uh, USC, Michigan State, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Ole Miss, Cincinnati, Houston. The, the usual names are there. You have to play the games. Now, let me just take a look at three little storylines here, um, coaching-wise. First up, you've got Mario Cristobal back in his hometown of Miami. Comes from Oregon. Miami, are we going to see big things? Is the U back? Well, they're not back as we consider Miami being back, and that was an elite program 
maybe the best program in the country for a stretch. No, no doubt they were. Um, I think they're back recruiting-wise. I think what they're doing with the, the one booster in particular with the NIL, they're going right. to recruit, and that's what Mario does well. I think certainly, um, you know, Mario, while did a great job at Oregon, um, you know, game management, game day situations, you know, th- th- that's areas that he's going to have to improve upon. I think they're going to be good. I think they can absolutely win that division. Um, so I think they're on their way to improving. But back as, you know, Miami back, no, I don't I don't think they're that. I think they're, you know, again, one of those teams that, uh, you know, not a playoff caliber team nationally, but a team that could win uh, could win their division. I, I expect them to to drop a couple of games, but you know, uh, going through the six and six, seven and five, I think they're going to be better than that. I think the the nine wins become more uh, attainable than in recent years. Uh, you don't think so? In the uh, I'm trying to remember the they're in the Atlantic um, conference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wait, I think right. no. I mean, these are the coastal conference. They're in, in, the, coastal. in the coastal, and and I think it's you know Pitt won it last year. I think Pitt's going to be good again. Yep. I think that's what you're looking at. I mean, I think it's 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 Pitt, it's Miami, you know, certainly Duke, Georgia Tech. I think North Carolina is going to be pretty good. Those are the teams you have to look for: Miami, Pitt, and North Carolina. Uh, in the coastal, in, in the in the Atlantic, it's it's Clemson, and then there's there's quite a bit of a drop off there. I'm shocked that you've not picked Syracuse to win the Atlantic uh, Conference, the Atlantic Division. I, I haven't yet. I thought about it, but you <laughs> no, know, because I was on, on with you. No but chance. I, but then I said, you know, I, can't, I just can't do that. That would just be teasing you. Oh please, I'll tell you. You know, I was there when uh, Coach Mack was there, Dick McPherson, and he brought that program back, and it was a top ten program consistently. And Pasqualoni kept the program going. And then they just made so many tragic errors. The wrong coach, wrong athletic director. And, you know, Dino Babers, everybody thought he was going to be great. He had success at smaller schools. But he was a, he's been so far a one-hit wonder on Scott Schaefer's recruits. So I think it's uh, – I'd say it's, it's do or die this year, but I don't think the university can afford to pay him. He's still got a big, uh, a big nut to pay out yeah. if they get rid of him after this season. Yeah, that's a program that really lost their identity. I actually coached against Coach Mack's teams, that, and they beat us in the Hall of Fame Bowl when I was coaching at LSU. I was uh, they at that were game. Really, that was 1989, I think. January yeah, 1st 88, of 89. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 88 season, 89. What was the head coach's then, name at the time? Uh, well, uh, uh, Mike Archer was the head Mike coach. Archer. Uh, Mike was Archer. The head coach at LSU, obviously, Coach Mack. But then, and then Paul. Um, good friend offered me a job at Syracuse, um, and I ended up not taking it, but we really, a lot of respect for him. But I think a lot of it is they've lost their identity. That's a, that's where the old Big East, you know, Syracuse, West Virginia, Boston College, you know, um, Pitt, you know, and I, I, I understand why they did it. I would have done it if I then, but, but I would have loved to have Penn State in the big, I mean, what a good league. So they're recruiting, you know, in the in the Atlantic Coast, and and they're really not a true. It's just they don't really have any identity, and they're not one of the, you know, the the schools that are putting the big money dollars into it. And you've got a larger league, yeah. and so you know, it's just. It, but you know what? You got to find the right guy to. You know, I look at what they're doing at BC. 
that's a better coach program. They have a better plan. And Jeff Halfley is not going to have BC winning um, the Atlantic anytime soon, but they're already a better program than Syracuse. Why? Well, he's figured out that he can't get five stars and four stars at BC. You never could. But you know what? He's using his background at Ohio State and other places to where you can go and get some transfers and get some good players in. They have good offensive lines. They get some good quarterbacks. You know, they can go to bowl games consistently at BC. There's no reason why Syracuse can't do it. And I think I think Dino was a guy that was fool's goal. I, I, I just think that the one year that everybody, oh, look out, he's doing it. I thought he had a senior-laden team. And I, you know, I knew that uh, in my mind it wasn't sustainable. But you look at programs like Wake Forest and BC, they have a better program than Syracuse. Absolutely. And that, that is, that is, that is the, you know, again, don't expect Syracuse to, to, to win the Atlantic, but, but certainly going to bowl games. You know, when you schedule right, win seven, eight games, you can do that with the right coach. But as you mentioned, you know, uh, the money to get the right guy in is it an attractive enough job because, you know, you can go sell the old history that we just referenced, but you've got to go in and say, look, this is what we are. This is what our facilities, this is what our commitment level is. And it's going to be hard to hire somebody other than a, a, a pretty good Mac coach to come in there. And that's what, what Dino was. And, you know, look, I don't think there's anything wrong with bringing in Mac-level coaches to programs like that. I mean, look, Brian Kelly came from the Mac, and he had tremendous success every step of the way. And I think you have to have an adjustment saying, all right, we're not going to have a a coach that's going to be here 10, 15 years. You may get three, four, maybe five years out of a coach. He's going to have success, going to move on. But if you can build a program where you have – a reasonable amount of success, you'll be able to attract guys. And look, it's not like Syracuse isn't paying Dino Babers a decent buck. I mean, he's definitely making uh, significant money that would easily attract some good coaches on some of the lower levels. Let's take a look at talking about coaches. There's a few other interesting storylines that I want to look at. Number one, Jim Mora. He's back. He's at UConn, of all places. Still thinks he should not have been dumped at UCLA. What do you think? Is he going to... He's going to have his hands full. That's a oh. major turnaround. And aren't they still an independent? Yeah, they talk about no identity. I mean, it would, it's, a, it's a mess there. You know, JL wanted to get back in coaching. And there's some, I know JL, I, he and his dad and I are, are really close. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, it's just, there's really, there's nothing. Putting together a schedule is difficult. You're not playing for anything. It's very, very difficult. Um, I mean, the only thing you can sell is that it's near ESPN. <laughs> I don't know what else you sell. I, it's I like it's, what, it's, exactly. there's nothing there. It, it's, yeah, it's Randy Edsel did a good job his first go around. Second wasn't so great. And I think, again, they were in the Big East. And, again, as an independent, I don't know how you survive. I mean, maybe you take a look at even you know, going down uh, in – Go to like I, a Mac type conference. I, 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 don't, I know. don't know that I don't I don't get any. I mean, I think they would jump on that. I don't think there's any interest by the Mac. I really don't. Um, that's that's where you know you got to understand who you are and try to be competitive. You know, put some you know 
get get a few good players and you know try to put together a schedule and then get to the point where maybe you can go when when you the fallout of other these leagues are moving maybe you can go and get one, into one of those lower level conferences since geographics don't matter anymore maybe end up in one of those leagues and the MAC would be something that uh, I think they would jump on in a heartbeat because it gives you a schedule you can compete against the schools in the MAC or you should. It's just kind of the the old Buffalo treatment, you know. You do that, you got some identity. You can at least play for a title, a conference title. Right now, they've it's it's a really really tough sell. Yeah, listen, I watched a lot of the Buffalo games. Uh, you know, they and their coach got a nice big gig. I, his name oh, escapes absolutely. me. From, yeah, from absolutely, absolutely. Going, going to Kansas and he's is I think going to do a really good job. I, I think he's an outstanding young coach and uh, I think he you know he stayed there a while and that's what you have to do that ought to be the model you know can you do that and be attractive enough um, to be in that situation to where you can um, you can compete yeah Lance Leipold did a great mm-hmm. job at Buffalo came from a small I think division three yes, school Whitewater in Wisconsin but With he won Wisconsin Whitewater yeah won championships there and, and did a really good job and you know, uh, he was a guy that uh, was on the radar. I do a lot of uh, coaching search work, consulting work, and he was a guy that, that came out a lot. I, I, I was little surprised he was as interested in the Kansas job as, uh, as he was because I thought th- that he was on the track to maybe get something even a little bit better than that. But uh, he's embraced it, and quite frankly, um, you know, he's not going to turn Kansas around, but he's going to get them competitive and – uh, he's going to do a good job there. I mean, he he really will. And and good job is get him to maybe in a couple of years being like bowl eligible, which is getting it done in Kansas. There you go. So and again, I enjoyed watching his teams. Uh, brought in some good players. They were they were very competitive. I remember they had a game against Penn State in in uh, Penn State, and they took them. It it was until the fourth quarter until Penn State can uh, was able to turn that around. One other coach I want to ask about. Program talking about it one time had great identity under the legendary Bobby Bowden, Florida State. I mean, let's face it, Florida State, Florida, Miami, it was must-see TV. If you were talking about college football, it has really trailed off. Mike Norvell, this is what, I think his third season now? Mm -hmm. Is he going to get it done at Florida State? I don't know. Um, I thought he he had a really good chance of getting it done. I know what he inherited there was a lot of chaos, a lot of bad culture under the short tenure of Willie Taggart. But in in year three, he's going to have to look. I mean, beat Duquesne this week. Uh, try to you know certainly play LSU well, and then you know if you look at their their schedule, I think it's about maybe getting off to a decent start within the league. Um, you know, find a way to to you know beat Louisville. BC Wake, you know, without Sam Hartman, that's what they need to do. Florida State is the picture perfect example of uh, where you can go wrong in not keeping up with the Joneses financially. And look, you are who you are. I'm not going to criticize somebody if they can't create and raise the money that they need to, but then have the expectation that's that's realistic. So if you go back to Florida State under Bobby Bowden, let's go more recently the Jimbo Fisher they won a national championship. So what does Joe Fan say? Well. See, you don't need all that big money and the, the, the facilities. That you, you did it. No, that's where you're wrong. That's where it's the landscape is changing really quickly. They fell behind in fundraising and facilities, and they're, they're, getting, they're, they're getting better on that. But people like Clemson, they're so far ahead 
in terms of facility and fundraising. North Carolina has far better football facilities than Florida State. So what it is, oh, absolutely. They've got a Taj Mahal over there. I mean, it's just – so Florida State lived off of what Bobby Bowden did and what Jimbo Fisher did. Well, guess what? Uh, Those kids don't give a flip about that. They don't even know you were good. And so when people say things like, well, you you went and got the Memphis coach. Well, that's as good as you can get. Mark Stoops at Kentucky turned them down and said, I got a better job at Kentucky. I got much better facilities, even though I got to compete in the SEC. And, and of course, they didn't like hearing that, but that's the reality. So that's where Florida State is. And I don't know that Mike's going to get it done. But, you know, getting another guy, you know, I think Florida State thinks of themselves as a, an elite program because it was elite under Coach Bowden. It's no longer elite. And getting coaches that are going to want to say, wait a minute, we're going to want this type of staff, this type of facilities, and you're not doing it to the degree that others are and you expect to beat them, you know, that's why you lose Jimbo Fisher to A&M. Why did you lose them to A&M? A&M has certainly not won half as much as Florida State. Money. Okay, you've got resources at A&M that you did not have at Florida State, so you lose that coach. And it's the same reason why maybe you can't go get that elite coach, that proven coach at a bigger-time program, that you're going to have to get one of those Conference USA, uh, an Atlantic type, that for, for them the facilities and the money is greater than what they have. But for Florida State, if you're going to beat Clemson, you need to look like Clemson. You need to act like Clemson. You need to spend like Clemson. You need to do the type of things. And Florida State, to their credit, has improved that, improved that quite a bit. But it's like a race, Dave, and they're so far behind the race, it's, you know, it's like a, a, a mile race, and you, you let some schools get you know, 200 yards away from the finish line, and now you got to make up ground. And so – the best hope is that Clemson could come back to the pack a little bit, and uh, we'll see where they are. But but I think the right guy, and if it's not Mike, they need to find their guy that maybe can be the fit to maybe go forward and build it and, and maybe try to help grow the fundraising even greater so that they can reach those heights. And let's face it, when they brought in Willie Taggart, I didn't think that was a great fit. He came from University of South Florida, had success, went to Oregon, I, I just didn't see it when they brought him in. And even a number of alum, people, are friends of mine that are on the board, were very, had really mixed feelings. They like Willie Taggart as a person, but they didn't think he was the guy, and he wasn't. So sometimes you have such a hole that's, that's dug that, mm-hmm. you know, it takes the new guy far longer to come in and really dig out of it. Well, and look, you know, Jimbo didn't handle things well because no, he, he got frustrated with – with the with the you know the fundraising issues and so basically he let go of the rope in the last year of the program and that hurt in recruiting and then Willie comes in and you're so right the folks at Oregon in one year were so happy that he left and they could right. promote Cristobal because he had done so much damage in one year so he goes to Florida State and the biggest you know key for him getting the job is that that was home for him he loved the place he loved the school and that's great but it created a lot of culture problems. So Mike has had to spend a year, two years, trying to clean that up. So he's done a lot of that, or done some of that. But the talent level is not nearly what it used to be. I mean, Florida State could recruit top five in the country. I recruited against Coach Bowden. I mean, I know what it was like. And Jimbo was recruiting at a high level and getting guys like, well, they don't have those type of guys. They don't have them in numbers. 
and they're good, but they're not, you know, they can't line up against Clemson and go talent for talent. And so if you're expecting him to beat him, you, you, look, Nick Saban is the best because he gets the best players and he coaches the best. You know, Florida State doesn't get the best players and they don't have the best coach. Um, so they've got a good coach, they get good players. Well, that's what you're going to get. You're going to hopefully, if you're Florida State, get good. But you're not going to get great until you elevate your program to the status of the elites. And here's the positive. In the ACC, you know, North Carolina may have better facilities, and they got a great population base in the state. But there's no reason why you can't catch North Carolina. Now, Clemson's a different different uh, kettle of fish, and maybe maybe they come back to the pack a little bit. It's doable, but, you know, it. you've let yourself get so far behind at Florida State that it's going to be a challenge that's a little bit more difficult than I think any Seminole fan had thought or had hoped. And Mike Norvell just doesn't seem to me to have that big personality like Bobby Bowden did. He just doesn't seem to have that, not the enthusiasm, but just doesn't have that uh, that that aura that walking into a recruit's home like Bobby Bowden did. And let's face it, Bobby Bowden was one of a kind, but I just don't see that. And I'm looking now at, for example, some of the other coaches, the new uh, the Florida uh, Gators coach, who seems to have a pretty comes from your neck of the woods also pretty uh, you know pretty outsized personality uh, and seems to have you know Billy uh, Napier seems to have that really good ability to recruit and I think sell the program and you got to be a salesperson too you can't just be X's and O's you got to sell and and it's an example of a guy that came from Louisiana Lafayette that you know again not a big time program like Memphis wasn't but I can tell you. You know, if the job were open, he there's no way he'd have considered the Florida State job because where did Billy Napier come from? He learned from Nick Saban, and he knows Florida the commitment. They just opened up the $85 million facility, um, you know, the, the, the big, large staff, all the things that, that he would want. Uh, again, the same reason why Mark Stoops said, no, I'm not interested, and, of course, Florida State uh, wasn't interested in him after that. That's where the issues are. So can you go find that guy that is willing to do that? But if are you going to give him the same resources? Because you can go find the guy. Uh, and if, if he's the right guy and you, you're not the right place and you don't have the right infrastructure built, he's not going to be the right guy. And so, yeah, it's personality is one thing. Um, I, I think Mike has been – you know, good in a lot of areas, and I think he's a good coach. He did a wonderful job at Memphis, and he was going to get a big-time job somewhere, and I think, quite frankly, Florida State had to convince him, and, and we're very fortunate to get him. It doesn't mean that it's going to work out, but I think you have to put that in perspective if you're a Florida State fan to say, well, wait a minute, we need to elevate the program right. and not just live off what we used to be under Bobby Bowden because those days don't exist among recruits. They don't know who Bobby Bowden was, sadly. And they they can read about him and hear about it. They don't know. Right. Their dads may know. Their grandparents may know. They, they don't. They'd rather go to somebody that's hot, and hot is what happened yesterday. And so you better – you know, get to the point where you can, if you want to beat those teams, you need to look like them, act like them. And right now they're going to have to hit lightning in a bottle because I don't know that they can convince an elite coach to come, but that's what they probably need to do. And and I think there's a reality 
at Florida State, as you say, they have to upgrade the facilities that maybe they got to give this coach a, a bit of time because there was just such tremendous damage done between the lousy recruits um, when Jimbo left, Jimbo Fisher left, and then Willie Taggart. It was just an absolute mess. And sometimes, and, and let's face it, the, the COVID year, that was kind of a screwed up year. So you almost have yes. to give uh, a coach some time uh, to get in there. And I remember Coach Mack at Syracuse. It took him a number of years. He had to you know get the recruits. He had to get his program to get the right coaches. And when he did, there was a huge upset victory over Nebraska. And then, boom, they just started rolling. So I think there's a realization you have to give some time. All right, real quick. I, th I think that's yeah. in one real quick thing. If you're Florida State there, you have to say, you give this guy time, you know, that that's in your favor. If you're not, who are you going to get? And if right. you're going to go and get the same type of guy with the same type of pedigree, what are you doing? I mean, you're not going to get an elite coach. You know, the program, uh, unless you can get an elite coach, why would you make a move? So I, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with you there. All right, so let's take a look uh, at the SEC real quickly. First of all, in the SEC East with Billy Napier now, I mean, is he – George obviously is tough, but where do you see the Gators? And uh, how do you see that – that division shaping up. It, it's Georgia, and there's a separation. Um, probably as big of a separation between Georgia and the rest of the East is there's Alabama and the rest of the West. Florida, I think, can get there. Uh, I think Tennessee's going to be improved. I think Kentucky, Mark Stoops, does as good a job as anybody. Yep. Um, certainly, it's the ultimate developmental program in the SEC. But there's a drop-off. There's a drop-off talent level-wise. I think Florida's good. I think Florida is good for maybe to surprise folks. But um, Georgia is is kind of on a different level, and I don't see – I think it's about who's second, not who's first in these. And then in terms of the SEC West, it's probably the same story. Alabama, number one. And then you've got Texas A&M, uh, which supposedly had the best recruiting class of the entire – college football world this past season. Uh, you've got Arkansas, who's ranked number 19, Ole Miss. Uh, to me, I'm a big Mike Leach fan. I just I like watching him. I like watching the way uh, you know his teams play. Does he have a chance of doing anything, uh, maybe coming in second or third in that, uh, that division? Probably not second or third, but I do think it's kind of wide open after Alabama. I think Arkansas, I think LSU will be good, but you know, they're going to be better in a couple of years once Brian's able to establish things. Ole Miss, a lot of transfers. They'll be competitive. I think State will have an improved year. A&M, great recruiting class, but not many of them are going to have uh, an impact in this year's uh, season. So I think there's a there's a drop-off. And, and, again, again, who's who's the third-best team in the SEC? It's a great question. It's a great debate. Um, if you look at Easter, I think it's Alabama, it's Georgia, and I think there's a drop-off. And I'm not sure that there's a clear third team in the SEC. There will be one by the end of the year that will develop. But right now it's it's a lot of good teams but there's not a team that's capable of being like on a national playoff stage outside of Alabama, Georgia in the SEC. Yeah, it's going to be a free-for-all. All right, so finally, as we wrap it up, predictions. Maybe give me uh, who do you think are going to be in the Final Four this year? Well, I think it'll be uh, Alabama and Ohio State uh, in the national championship game. I think Georgia will likely go unbeaten and lose to Alabama and probably get in. And that fourth team is a bit of a toss-up. Um, I would probably vote for Clemson just because their schedule, and I think they'll be pretty good. Um, Utah is really good, 
But again, they have to have their A game every week, and playing right. nine conference games in a Pac-12 is going to be difficult, and getting by Florida is going to be difficult. So I don't know, uh, an Oklahoma, Baylor, an Oregon, you know, I, you could throw a bunch of teams in there that, with Clemson, but I'd probably put Clemson in there. But I think the, it's, to me, it's, it's likely um, the tough matchup is be who's going to have to play Georgia. I think Georgia's, a, there, again, there's a drop-off from three to four. So I think Alabama will be the one seed. I think Georgia and Ohio State will be a good semifinal matchup. And I think Alabama will blow out whoever ends up being the fourth seed. And I'll put Clemson in there right now. Well, I'd like to see Utah because certainly you don't think of Utah as a perennial power. And it's nice to see a team like that get into the Final Four, bring some uh, enthusiasm, excitement. And the one thing people don't realize about Utah, they travel very well because they are allowed to bring their 9 to 10 wives to every game, every road game. So therefore, they have no problem selling out their ticket allotment. It's a piece of cake. (laughs) Oh, goodness. It's a card, Dave, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you know Get what? Cards we have to and have letters little... to him. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, we're not politically correct here on the Cigar Dave Show. We have fun with it. It's okay. Yeah, I love well, it. I love it. We, we get away with it. Well, Chris, we appreciate, as always, you joining us. Hopefully, we can get you on maybe mid-season and see where things are uh, shaping up. I know if people want uh, more information, not only do you do uh, scouting but about the draft, NFL, college, got a great website. It's LandryFootball.com. There are memberships that are on there. Also, social media. Will you give us your social media uh, addresses? Yeah, it's real simple. At Landry Football, Twitter, uh, Landry Football, Facebook, and uh, yeah, the website, LandryFootball.com. The podcast on the Landry Football Podcast Network. Always talking football. If it involves players, teams, coaches, schemes on the college and NFL level, we got it covered for you. If you like football, you're going to love LandryFootball.com. So check hey, us any out there. chance I can get you on next week to talk about the NFL, and I promise I'll keep you way less. Hey, absolutely. Let's do it. Love talking football with you. Let's talk uh, the NFL. I think you might have an interest in some certain team that's going to be pretty good. So So let's do it. They got a little controversy going on right now that just just took place, but we'll see what happens on that. But aside from that, yeah, they look like a pretty complete team. The Buffalo Bills will will see what happens. And, you know, I remember Marv Levy, the great Marv Levy, said, you know, is your goal to win the Super Bowl? He said, no, our first goal is to stay healthy. Our second goal is to win the division. And then our third goal is to win the conference. Then we want to win the Super Bowl. But if you don't have all those three things prior to that, you're not going to get anywhere. And he makes a very good point because we've seen some great teams that get hit by the injury bug and things can change very dramatically. So I always keep my fingers crossed, but uh, we'll see what happens. But can't wait to talk to you NFL next week. The great Chris Landry, LandryFootball.com. Football views from a coach, scout, administrator, one of the best in the business. That wraps it up for this edition of the Cigar Dave Show. I'm going to go watch some college, not some, a ton of college football the rest of the day and this evening. Cigar Dave, the general saying, Mayor Humidor always be full. Mayor Cutter always be sharp. Mayor Ashby extra, extra long. Semper Delictatio, always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Red Wave 2022. Live it up.